Hi guys, welcome back to my channel, Do More, which is all about entrepreneurship, investment, and basically being the best version of yourself that you can be. Now, my, my guest today is a very well-respected corporate personality named uh, Tansri uh, Asman Mokhtar. Now, he headed over the course of nearly two decades, uh, Kazana National, Malaysia's top sovereign wealth fund, uh, building huge wealth for the country uh, over the course of that period, and uh, of course, building a lot of regional champions abroad and uh, building Malaysia's name in, in the region. Now, over the course of the couple of hours that we spent recording this podcast, we spanned our conversation, uh, Tansri Asman's career in finance, his career at Kazana National. We talked about how finance and how we regard the world of banking uh, is it's changing fast over the course of, um, as we go deeper into the 21st century. Now, of course, we also talked about life. We talked about leadership. We talked about love. And of course, uh, Malaysia's role in the world that is dominated by you know big superpowers like China and the US. And of course, we also talked about this not small matter of his trip around the world in 77 days uh, on 77 trains. And of course, for those among you who are listening to this podcast on Spotify, uh, iTunes, Google Play or Podbean, I should also mention that Tantri Azman shared quite a few pictures and visuals of his life, which can only be seen on YouTube. So if you want to catch that longer segment, please head on over to the channel on YouTube to really catch that full segment. Now, you know, Tantri Azman, of course, is a man for all seasons and a real asset to Malaysia. I just wish there were more of him to go around. So I hope you like this podcast. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it and talking to one of Malaysia's most distinguished corporate personalities. And if you did really enjoy it, please do give me a like, uh, share it with your friends, subscribe to the channel, and tell me what you think in the comments below. Stay safe, take good care of yourself, and see you soon. Hi, Tan Sri. Such a pleasure to see you, and thank you for doing this. It's a real honor and a privilege to be chatting with you. Uh, I, I, I hear you've been keeping busy. You tell me that you've been archiving your thoughts. You've, um, you've been traveling the world. You've been writing. Uh, you've been, uh, in fact, you've been around the world uh, by train, which we'll talk about later. 77 days uh, in 77 trains. You've even attained a few roles in, in distinguished, uh, certain ac uh, distinguished academia. Um, so I guess um, let's start with asking you how you've been because it's almost three years to the day. In fact, slightly more than three years since you left Kazana. So do, do you miss corporate life? How are you? Yeah, thank you, Chuang. Uh, happy and, uh, and honored to be on your podcast. So I think we've been trying to do this for several months, but we've been in lockdown, right? So, uh, you know, I don't normally have these microphones here. I think this is uh, Chuang's doing. Uh. So, yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I've, I've been well. Yeah, it's actually been almost three years since uh, I left the corporate world. Uh, at the end of July 2018, so this is almost the end of July, three years later, right? So first of all, do I miss it? Uh, yes and no. I think you know, sometimes yes, but I think by and large, no. I also checked uh, the KLCI, actually, since I left. Uh, I don't think I miss that much, la, to be honest. If you judge by um, when I left, I think it was about 1750 uh, uh, today is about 1,500 or, or slightly more, right? So it's down about 15%. Of course, that's not the only indicator. Uh, but very quickly, like, as you said, uh, in that three years, actually, about half of that has been under lockdown. So I've been back home. 
uh, which was the right decision because before that I was spending about half a year in the UK especially where I was doing a couple of fellowships at my uh, my old university uh, at Cambridge I was a visiting fellow so I was doing a bit of research a bit of teaching a bit of uh, learning myself and indeed lots of travel so in that first year and a half I think at the most only about a third I was back home in Malaysia right so uh, since then I've been uh, home and over the last year or so I've been taking up uh, quite a few roles in public service in education in uh, uh, Mercy Malaysia, for example, I'm on the board, uh, which is really about uh, social services. Uh, I'm chairing university technology. I'm on the board of INSEAF, the Islamic Finance University. I'm on several uh, national councils that the current, well, the government appointed eh, to, to help out on a few things. Uh, plus some commercial ventures that like we can talk about later. Yeah, um, so many roles, so much to get into, but we agreed to do this in three parts. So I guess the first part is really, um, you know, your journey as a finance professional. And, uh, you know, obviously finance since the global financial crisis has changed a considerable amount. Um, and that's your key area. That's that's your interest uh, in your research. I think you look at finance from a development perspective, especially as we live in an emerging market like Malaysia. In fact, that's what you also taught when you were visiting at Cambridge. Um, so just in your opinion, Tanshree, from, from your perspective as former head of a sovereign wealth fund with Kazana, 14, 15 years, um, h- how is finance changing? How is it evolving? And how should professionals you know, accommodate themselves in this new future? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I'm not sure. Where, I think I've made available to Chuang uh, a particular presentation I made about roughly about six, seven months ago. Uh, it was uh, CIMB Securities lah, in their partnership with CGS, right? So they invited me to talk to finance professionals. So I believe more than 100 finance professionals, people in investment attended and basically asking about, you know, where, where finance is going and, you know, with a particular emphasis on our local market. But also they wanted to hear about, you know, as a finance professional, right? So we, we've gone through the journey, right? For me, for about uh, as long as 40 years, you know? So uh, I would place it from the time, you know, you make a choice in your life, in your, uh, where, where, what you do, did in university. Uh, in fact, I didn't go to university, I did ACCA, right? So I chose to be an accountant or rather that's how I ended up. And you know, your path in finance really started for me about 40 years ago. And uh, both the world and finance actually has changed in that 40 years. So along the way, of course, I've worked for, not just for Kazana, but before that in the capital markets, I was head of research at both Solomon Smith Bunny uh, during the 98 crisis period, right? And before that, I was head of research at UBS Malaysia uh, during the boom years until about 95, 96, 97, right? So... So you've seen how this evolved, but by and large, uh, I think it's fair to say the 30, 40 years has seen the importance of finance has, has risen so much that, that, in fact, financialization, that means you see the impact of finance in practically everything, right? So, so to the point that uh, the role of banks, and we saw this during the global financial crisis, the Lehman crisis, 
uh, that finance really reaches so many parts of the economy uh, to the point where I think it's no longer a, a, a minority view. Lah, that people are concerned that uh, finance is supposed to serve the real economy and the real economy is then supposed to serve uh, society as a whole. Eh? Uh, there's an argument that this has been reversed somewhat. So, for example, if you take, uh, and this was relatively early, right, when, um, you know, how much do banks make on proprietary trading on, say, oil, uh, oil futures, for example, right? Uh, there was a time when oil went up to above 100 US dollars per barrel, in fact, I think Goldman was calling 150 or 200 or thereabouts. And I think during that time, uh, speculation on oil was going up, uh, you know, to the point that profits made from them were and certainly trading were higher than trading of the real thing. Uh, that even the likes of Aramco, etc., you know, may not have been earning as much as uh, the financial, the financiers and the financial speculators, right? So at one level, that's fine. I mean, speculation is good to, to an extent. But at another level, what that, that, that does is that it affects society because, you know, oil is an essential item. Diesel prices go up and many, uh, many population cannot handle that, right? And typically, the government will put price controls of governments around the world. But then, then governments, balance sheets cannot handle it because the subsidy will be too high. But it's not just that. This spills over, say, into the the, uh, the food sector because uh, biofuels, for example, right? So some people, uh, you know, Jetropa and so on, you know, you, you use uh, an alternative instead of going to food, this thing uh, can become uh, fuel, right? So become biofuels. So so when, when fuel price goes up, biofuel price goes up, the food price goes up. And, and then you start a whole spiral, right? So people in Mexico, for example, you know, instead of eating, I don't know, four tortillas a day, had to eat two. And people in Pakistan, instead of eating, I don't know, three chapatis a meal, had to cut down by half. You know, this was really happening, right? And you can, you can multiply that all over the place. So therefore, part of the pushback has come, I think, after the 2008 crisis. Uh, what you see today, I think it's everywhere, right? The ESG movement. It's not a new one, but it has really picked up the last two, three years uh, in, in a very major way, right? Today is front and center, the whole ESG movement, as you know, we can talk a bit more about that. But I think partly in response to where finance has gone, like it's gone too far to the point that I think it has lost its way a bit, or not a bit, lah, somewhat in terms of serving society through serving the real economy. Lah. Sorry, eh? a bit of a long explanation, but that's, that's basically... I've just summarized what I've been, I've been, I've been studying about and teaching about actually. Yeah, um, what you say is very true, Tantri, and and some might suggest that um, the lessons that should have been learned in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, were not learned um, because we seem to be making the same mistakes again. What with financial markets at record highs, and the biggest casualty is of course the ordinary guy, because the the wealth divide, the the divide between the rich and the poor, has never been wider, and it's not just in Malaysia, it's in America, it's all over the world. Um, so this comes at a time when there's a lot of young people soul searching. COVID has caused them to, you know, to reach deep within themselves and ask themselves what it is that they want to do. That's why a lot of, I guess, a lot of smart people are going into startups and into, you know, in, in fintech, for example. They're going to the environment, uh, social entrepreneurs. Um, 
if you were to dispense some advice, Tansri, to the budding financial um, practitioner, what would it be? Yeah, I think the the you know the, to 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 pick up from from where we we last covered on finance just now. So financialization results or finance results in this financialization in the first place, right? So 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 you could argue there's misallocation of capital and so on and so forth. But what that does is what you've just described, which is the issue of inequality. Again, this was not front and center until about maybe, I suppose, 10 years ago. The French economist Thomas Piketty, as you know, wrote, wrote a, a famous book on capital, a bit of a take on Karl Marx's Das Kapital, 100 years earlier or thereabouts. So, so I think... If you think about it, one, one of the consequences of too much financialization is basically money has become uh, so prevalent because of the unusual uh, monetary policy of you know, essentially what they call quantitative easing or some call quite simply printing of money, lah, more or less, eh? fiat money. Uh, what that does, of course, as you know, when there's too much supply or something is the price drops. Lah. So interest rates drop to record low or even negative real interest rates. Uh, when that happens, actually, as you know, in finance, there's an inverse relationship, right? Uh, interest rates drop, capital value goes up. So capital values, that's why it has gone up so much. And therefore, it, it, it benefits those with capital. You know, uh, and this plays its way out into the capital markets, i.e. i.e. stocks mostly and, and bonds as well. But also, another financial uh, asset is really has become a financial asset is, is housing. And when housing goes up, you know, much faster than wage income, uh, this actually squeezes those with no capital or just about to enter the capital ladder or the property ladder, i.e. younger people. And when you combine all this is happening, asset price inflation at a time when uh, real economic growth is, is slow, right? So this kind of a, a slow, and you got the impact of technology, which often puts pressure on jobs because of automation and, and, and th- that kind of a pro- productivity gains, right? Through machines, uh, AI and so on and so forth. So you combine that, you actually get inequality, you got pressure on employment, and, in partic- and you get you know, the youth who are struggling uh, to get jobs. And even when they get jobs, their wage growth is below capital growth and housing price growth. That's why you're seeing the phenomenon not just in Malaysia but all over the world today uh, that uh, you know uh, is very difficult for that generation actually and and it's tough I, I must say it's tough uh, on the other hand yes I think one route is actually to break away from the the witch uh, kind of a conundrum that you are you are you know in in the divide or the surplus between labor and capital labor gets a raw deal they, they get less right so so labor growth uh, wage growth may be 4-5% at best, whereas capital growth is maybe double or treble of that, right? Um, in some places, higher. So one way is indeed to be an entrepreneur, to go into, to try to do startups, etc. But as you know, the startup, eco, it really depends on the ecosystem where you are, it really matters. Eh? Uh, many are trying. Uh, I think, yeah, that there's good examples of success, etc., uh, but there's also a trend in technology, as you know, that that there is a concentration of power and a concentration into, uh, and this this concentration trend is not just in technology, like in practically every sector, 
this is happening eh? that that uh, that the big firms become even bigger lah. So in in tech there is now of course big tech, and uh, but in a way you know if you if you do a startup indeed part of your path uh, to success is not to become necessarily to become big tech, but grow big and uh, big enough or interesting enough that you may get acquired by one of the big techs uh, in future, right? And and many have gone down this road. I think that's the way to do it. So, you know. Definitely. Well, there's obvious repercussions on the labor market because if everybody turns into becoming an entrepreneur, then who's going to work in the startups and who's going to work in the organizations? That's one repercussion as well. But um, some would suggest that low interest rates and zero interest rates that we're seeing in the Western world for many, many years is very hard to reverse because it's almost like a drug. Um, Japan went through 20, 30 years of a lost, uh, in fact, one and a half generations now. They have not been able to raise interest rates at all because growth has been so bad. Um, we, we see the Federal Reserve has been trying to raise rates for many, many times over the last few years to no avail. Um, is, 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 is there any way to come out of this low interest rate regime without a lot of pain? And can it be done? Because it's politically unfeasible, Tanshree, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think the so-called exit strategy from a, from a low or even negative interest rate policy is a very difficult one, right? In fact, they've been talking about this for, for quite a while, certainly from the, 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 the global financial crisis of, of uh, 2008, right? Uh, but with very little success. In fact, the money creation uh, actually increased, especially the last two, three years, right? So you look at the Fed balance sheet, I, I can't remember how much, but you know, many trillions. Like you're talking about 25-30% increase in just the last couple of years. So it is a drug. It is steroids. So how do you win yourself out of it? Uh, I don't have a short answer, and I'm, I know many, many clever people are trying to think it through. Uh, so, so it is a kind of a you know, trap in a way that is very difficult to get out of. But... Um, I don't know. Historically, from what I can, from my readings and from what I can tell, that's why, uh, you know, sorry, before that, there's a lot of talk about, you may have heard about modern uh, uh, monetary theory, right? MMT, which basically says that it doesn't matter, you print money, you continue, you spend it, uh, and so on. I think that argument is quite attractive, but I think that only works when you're the world reserve currency, lah. Because you know, if you're if you're the world's reserve currency, you continue printing. People still have some faith in the in the in the greenback in the U.S. dollar, right? But you try doing that if you're a country like ours or or Thailand and so on and so forth. You know, uh, in short order, the the currency speculators will attack your currency, lah. In history, actually, uh, those who do uh, fiscal looseness, i.e. They, they, you know, monetary looseness, they, they continue printing money, eventually either inflation sets in or the basement of the currency sets in, right? Eventually, but that eventually can take a long time. Lah. You know, you're talking decades and so on. And usually it links to some weakening of your own political or geopolitical uh, uh, status. For example, you know, there was a time when the pound sterling was was the, uh, the 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 world's reserve currency right and but after second world war when the war cost britain a lot of money uh, their empire was shrinking and a lot of their profit centers were therefore being plucked out 
uh, and then it was the Suez. Uh, I think it was the Suez crisis, lah, which basically was sometime in the fifties when uh, Gen- when Nasser uh, of Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal, right? So that and then Britain couldn't do anything, and and really people realized that the the empire had little clothes left, lah, so to speak. So, so then the really sterling decline and no longer, and then the US dollar took over. But but that took you know the decline of the British Empire was really happening for for decades right but it took quite a long time before that debasement finally happened and and by the seventies you know UK had to go you know uh, hand in what they call it the cap in hand to to the IMF eh? asking for a bailout package can you imagine that so so those are some of the big trends and you know no country on earth apart from maybe North Korea maybe Iran who are sanctioned away. Get, are totally insulated from this monetary trend, right? Because because the world is an open economy, and Mala- Malaysia is the same. Uh, so it's not it's tough, lah. Because in that environment, you know, the few things I think we can and should do is, you know, concentrate more on the real economy. I think the financial markets are just one indicator, but you can see that if you pay too much attention to the capital economy and you don't pay enough attention to the real economy and the people's economy. Uh, this is a recipe that you'll be out of sync, lah, and you will not get, you know, social cohesion, etc., lah. So this is this is one important lesson. So in spite, you know, so so don't look too much about, frankly, even like times like this about rating agencies. Uh, you know, they matter, but but you know, you 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 your indicators actually is is maybe the how you measure whether how well you're doing or not well. You know, you should look at other, you know, human indicators, the the real economy, for example, rather than just the so-called capital economy. Yeah, I, I'm not sure whether the politics of our country will allow this, but it, it's an opportunity, right, to upheave and to transform the economy. Um, and, you know, obviously people like Chaos Jomo, the, the economist, has his call for radical reform. For example, this preoccupation with foreign direct investment is something which he's always been uh, quite um, sceptical of. Um, do you think there's room for Malaysia to go on a different path, um, to perhaps look at doing things in a different way? And do you think that there's an opportunity for the current government to do this? You know, their, their troubles notwithstanding? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, Chuang, but it is true. Every crisis gives this so-called opportunity, right? Uh, you know, so I think, yes, there's definitely an, an opportunity. I mean, there's a lot of challenges. I think we highlighted some of them. But there is definitely opportunity because, uh, for example, if in the West, uh, you know, they, they are and we should be too preoccupied on the whole carbon trans- transition for example so you 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 don't just build back better but you build back you build green you know you build back and green better right that kind of thing green new deal and so on and so forth uh, in our case yeah i think the the obviously we need to do our part in terms of the you know global environmental commons that challenge right uh, we need to do our part but at the same time some of the structural issues of our country include Inequality is one, right? So we talk about B40. Uh, arguably, the B40 would have expanded with the COVID, and that's you know that's that's tough. That's really tough, especially you've been making progress, right? Um, the over dependence on both 
uh, or even obsession as what Dr. Jomo said on FDI, I think it's one issue. We need to be more balanced because DDI, for example, the direct, uh, sorry, domestic direct investment, um, we have pools of savings, right? Uh, which are, of course, managed well by the likes of EPF and others. Uh, to the extent that, remember, about 20 years ago, we were, uh, or is it almost 30 years ago now, in the early 90s, what was one major need of the country at that time? We, we needed uh, infrastructure, for example. We needed you know, new airport, highways. So we were able to innovate as a country to mobilize those pools of savings uh, into public infrastructure, right? Of course, there was a privatization process in between some work, some didn't work, uh, you know, MRT systems, etc. right? So, so we created the public, uh, the private debt securities market, uh, initially bonds and then the Sukuk market. We started at five years, seven years, 10 years. Now you can comfortably get 21, 30 years, right? Uh, so, so can we convert this into productive uh, di direct investment that create jobs, you know, in sectors that that can earn foreign exchange? Actually, you know, whether tourism, for example, or improve in manufacturing, or indeed uh, part of the whole uh, digital uh, e-commerce produce that you can you can link, you know, the the real economy into the digital economy, etc. So, so we can talk a bit on specific. So, so my my first thought is that. Yes, you know, of course, all that uh, in some places they call it industrial policy. You need a lot of coordination. Uh, you need you need the vision. You need you need the leadership. You need you know the policy continuity lah, which which suggests uh, you know not really my area, but obviously from an economic and financial standpoint, you need political stability and policy continuity to do all that lah. So we hope that part of the equation, which is actually a critical part, gets sorted out lah, right? Uh, the second one, Chuang, is probably worth highlighting is the over-dependence, not just on foreign direct investment, but on overseas foreign workers. Eh? I think this, this crisis has, uh, the COVID crisis has highlighted this, the proverbial chicken has really, you know, come home to roost, I suppose. Um, you know, supposedly there's about 7 million, of which only about half are of official. So that's probably too many. So we have to wean ourselves off la, because it does many things. La. You know, one, one is the, the, the burden on, uh, on, uh, on, on the overall social infrastructure as, we, as we're seeing today, right? Uh, you know, that, you know, in this case, public health. But it's not just public health. So all kinds of social infrastructure are burden. But, but more important, importantly is actually the issue of, you know, there is wage suppression that is happening in the economy. Uh, arguably, not all, but many of those jobs, you know, if, if they were better paying jobs, this can be taken up by, by the locals, right? Uh, so, for example, they say if you go to Los Angeles, you go to a cafe or a nice restaurant, right? Uh, there are no waiters. Those guys and ladies and girls who are serving you, they are actually uh, actresses or script writers or film directors in future, they just happen to be waiting tables right now, right? Because, because you know, uh, any customer-facing job actually gives you a chance to, to, to show what you can do, to, to impress people, and that's what happened. Uh, I mean, as a student, I, I used to work in restaurants before for extra income, you know, and, and, and I'm glad I did because, you know, there's nothing like being customer-facing and serving a skinhead in, 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 in England at, 
at uh, 11 p.m. when the pubs close and the guy wants, you know, Oi, I want a burger, you know, and you are sitting down there and this guy is looking down at you because uh, you learn very fast lah, on your feet, right? So so our guys got to got to pick up the slack, lah, you know, we, we must take on this, uh, you know, be, be adventurous. Uh, I came into the job market in the mid-80s when I first came back as a, as a young accountant. I, I was lucky I had a job in uh, LLN, Tenaga lah, that time I was a scholar, right? So I served my bond. But some of my friends got no job. They work, jual uh, ayam percik, you know, at Pasar Malam, all this. They're all successful entrepreneurs now. Eh? So for me, maybe that was a trap. Had I gone out, I, I would have become, you know, chances are. So, so really, entrepreneurship is one route, but also the route of, I think, national kind of labor reforms. I think we, we need to look at this. And I will even go so far to, to make the point that Perhaps the minimum wage, for example, is too low. I think we should once we should consider making it into you know what I think Ben Nagara has an indicator called the living wage, which is significantly higher than the minimum wage. Of course, this is going to be more cost to the to the corporates, right? But as you know, under ESG, the corporates uh, have been flagged out. Overseas now, it's, it's a bit very awkward. Lah. We're reading about uh, what they call modern slavery. Eh? And Malaysia has been highlighted as one of the places where this is happening, whether in the manufacturing sector or the plantation sector or construction sector. Another impact of this would be actually it gives the opportunity for our companies to innovate, right? Because at the moment, there's little incentive to innovate when you, you, are, you are stuck on the drug of cheap labor, actually. So the time has come, and this has been going on for quite a long time. I think the time has come, uh, and and this is in a way, it's not a tax per se on on uh, because taxation is another another route lah, that some people are talking about, whether windfall tax etc. Uh, you know that's that's a related but separate topic. But if you think about it, uh, this is actually not a tax, but it's actually a wealth transfer from capital to labor. And when money goes to the lower income group, guess what? You have a super super powered turbocharged uh, lever into the economy because of the propensity to spend is very high. You know, when you are lower income, you you give uh, they they get more money. You know what they deserve. Uh, productivity, of course, we, we have to consider within this whole thing, right? Is chances are for every dollar they get, a lot of it is going to find its way into the economy, and the multiplier effect is going to be high, as opposed to you know rich guy or rich lady gets yet another dividend check. They just bank it in. It will just probably sit down there and earn one and a half percent FD rates or whatever lah. So 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 those are a couple of ideas I suppose. But lab, I think labor market reforms. How we look at, uh, because FDI, as you know, there's been a race to the bottom. Like people have been, you know, Philippines offer for BPO, the Malaysia the challenge, and then Thailand does this. That, that. Then in the end, actually the host country, I think studies have shown, the impact can be a bit limited. Eh? It's good, lah. You, you create certain jobs, but sometimes the jobs are also, you know, a bit suppressed. So that's where even if you start, you know, I think a serious study should be done looking at minimum wage to go into living wage, for example. Well, the thing is, um, quite fortuitously, um, you've recently been appointed one of eight professionals to uh, to join this National Recovery Council by the government. And that's interesting because um, you have been part of the 
10 year, at least 10 year transformation agenda for the government linked companies. And maybe, and some people suggest that the GLCs and the GLICs, which is the government linked investment companies, there's a role for them to play in forging this new path. And what a better time than now, when obviously, you know, you know, out of this chaos can come some order. Yeah, I think I think the yeah I think there's several things there, Chuang. I think first of all the the National Recovery Council. Yeah, I think you know, uh, frankly, I was a bit surprised, but since since I've been called, I said okay, let let's see what you know. Of course, I'll try my best. Uh, you know, at a time of national emergency, uh, But also to 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 be clear, you know, uh, exactly what is the role, etc. We will need to see, but inshallah, I'll try my best. Uh, maybe just a brief word on the the whole recovery process. I think you know it's been chatted out somewhat. Uh, obviously, the the way I'm trying to frame and think about this is, I would say there are three uh, recoveries that we need to manage, lah. You know, three timelines, right? In in my view, at least, uh, the first two is obvious, and the third one is not so obvious, or rather, is there, but it's certainly related. So the first two is in the short term let's say within 12 18 months is really the the recovery from the virus like you know the public health challenge right uh, there are all kinds of medical experts epidemiologists people in the, and you know the vaccination program so this is not really my area of course it is related the second one is around economic recovery which is perhaps concurrently is on a say a 3 to 5 year period like we really need to grab this chance i think the, the there are they obviously related lives and livelihoods and so on and so forth uh, but you know in the priority to me the public health challenge takes precedence that we have to solve that and we will solve that through vaccination and through discipline in uh, managing the lockdown and some cleverness in terms of being surgical about where to lock down where not to lock down when to test when to trace etc etc but obviously discipline no double standards, etc. Right, all these things must, must apply. Uh, in so far as the economic recovery, yeah, we talk about some of that. You know, so new investments, new types of investments, job creation, uh, reforming, you know, labor uh, markets, and then you know, concentrating on certain uh, growth areas, right? Whether uh, you know, whether for example, uh, the whole green economy, uh, whether uh, food and agriculture, for example. You know, food tech. You know, now I think there's more consciousness on food security, on traceability, health, and so on and so forth, right? And I suppose during during the COVID crisis, also suddenly, you know, people are discovering that uh, you know they can actually bake stuff or plant vegetables. Of course, these are all micro scale, but some are turning this into businesses, right? Which I think is interesting. Uh, but the third one is the third horizon. I think is just as important. Of course, this will need uh, both political will and societal will to execute, which are the longer-term uh, challenges in terms of structural reforms that the country needs. Lah. You know, from political reforms to how the country is governed, to the issue of NEP, to the issue of education, vernacular schools. You know, these are all important things of us as Bangsa Malaysia, lah, if we really want to get ahead. Uh, because otherwise, I think the stability of the country that the economy and social services like health needs to be built on will not be stable. I think this is the key point. And, you know, others like, um, you know, my friend Dato' Nazir Razak, for example, has been calling 
for National Consultative Council, which I think is a good idea. You know, I've I've given my views to that project, the Better Malaysia project, which is, you know, to 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 have a deliberative council to think through. Uh, the kind of structural reforms the country needs. And by the way, it's not the first time we're doing it. As you know, the original NCC was after the 69 riots. And then later when Dr. Mahathir did the NDP, I think he did an, another kind of um, uh, consultative council, right? Uh, but to do that, of course, you need you need uh, some degree of goodwill and trust, lah, that, that peop- you know, the social capital to do that, which I think we, we can get there. Uh, on the role of GLICs and GLCs, sure. You know, as I said, Gleeks, you know, they, they, they are by and large well managed. Thank God for that. Uh, you could argue they should be more adventurous, etc. On the other hand, I'm now a semi-retired pensioner. I want them to not to take too much risk with my, my pension, right? Which is good. On the other hand, you know, different horses for different courses. My old shop, Kazana, was always, you know, a kind of a risk taker on behalf of the, the government, you know, in many ways. And indeed, after 09... Uh, we did a whole bunch of stuff at that time lah, uh, to try and <clears throat> and trigger the whole uh, domestic investment process, right? So investments in places like Iskandar, into sectors like creative industry, into life sciences, into technology. I think these are the kind of riskies or theme parks or building up a tourism base eh, to, to, you know, Desaru, etc. So this was actually done about 10, 12 years ago which I'm sure the uh, perhaps the new CEO at Kazana, uh, I don't know, but that could be part of his mandate. But certainly, you need instruments to convert some of those uh, savings uh, into, into you know, the kind of productive investments that also creates jobs, right? And create good jobs into the real economy. Uh, to do that, you need money, but you also need management skills. And, and a policy framework to allow that lah. So so in in economic you know jargon, I suppose this is called industrial policy, which is actually backed with a bang lah. You know, um, uh, certainly after COVID, Joe Biden's uh, 1.9 trillion program is essentially one big industrial policy. Yeah? His investment program and uh, and you see uh, economists like Maria Mazzucato, I think you may have heard. She talks about the mission-based economy, etc. So it's back in fashion, and rightly so. Lah. I think it shouldn't have left in the first place. So yeah, those are some thoughts, John. Yeah, um, I, I just couldn't help but notice that some of the things that you talked about, some of the social policies that need to be dismantled, whether it's the NEP or whether it's the education system, or whether it's some of those monoliths which have been around a long time, you know, it is things that which have been, well, obviously, which has held the country back uh, domestically, but also it's been looked upon with some disdain by people like foreign fund managers and ratings agencies and, of course, people like the World Bank. They've made comments on that in the past and, you know, quite rightly so as well. The thing is, they're very, very big decisions to make. There's big political repercussions from doing so. And there'll be months, if not years, of social friction as a result of that because we've had nearly 50 years of those policies. So how are we going to push those through? Yeah, I think, yeah, to clarify so that I'm not misunderstood, Chuang, um, I'm not necessarily saying dismantle because dismantle is a big word. First of all, it's not up to me. Lah. It's, it's basically, it should reflect both, you know, what society wants and needs uh, as well as, of course, we, we should be anchored on, you know, certain values and principles of, you know, natural fairness, etc. And, 
of course we have our national cons- you know our Malaysian constitution etc etc right uh, but you know to understand for example we we uh, we are a nation that will turn 64 next month 64th uh, merdeka right so 64 years old is for a person is quite old lah. in fact somebody told me what the beatles made a song about uh, being 64 right remember I'm 64. when i'm 64 yeah, so right. but for countries 64 yeah. is not that old lah, actually <clears throat> it's not that old I mean, uh, you look at where America was after 64 years. I think they were still having, you know, uh, in fact, they they had not even gotten into a civil war yet. They will eventually go into civil war, etc. Right? So, so not that, not that we know uh, nothing of that sort that we hope. But in that 64 years, Chuang, I, I I reflect back and say, okay, we, we've actually overcome quite a lot of obstacles. Eh? So 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 at the time when we're doing this podcast. You know, we're wondering. I think there's a lot of uncertainty, but but let's just step back a bit and say that you know, if you look back in '57 when we became a country, again, eh, this is I'm just voicing out. I was born in '61, but you know, '57 became a country. You know, it wasn't easy, right? You put this together, it's post-colonial, etc. Uh, a lot of imbalances in the country at that time. Uh, then, of course, the our you know, under very unfortunate '69 riots. Then the response to that. Uh, you know, but always it was not nationalization, but it was like grow, grow the pie such that you don't take from Peter to give to Paul and all that lah, right? So I, you know, my my parents couldn't go to university, and I was like first generation. Uh, you know, my parents were teachers lah, normal normal people, etc. Right? But I found my way, and you know, was able through through NEP. Uh, but I'm. Proud. I think I served back my contract, etc. And I, I hope I served that back and created value and all that, lah. And and so, but you know, uh, but I think if it's been abused, for example, or the time has come where inequality is actually color blind, right? It's not any particular race. You know, there there are a lot of um, poor uh, non-boomies as well. So anybody in power has to think about how to uplift all. You know, uh, so so instead of by race or you know how it's been, perhaps you know taken up by certain groups to just say it's by race, whereas actually Tun Razak and all didn't intend it that way. Uh, you know, it should actually be by need and and by you know to to solve the whole inequality issue. And inequality is many things, eh? not just wealth and income, but opportunity and so on and so forth. So, so that's basically what I'm trying to say. And, and indeed, when it comes to schools, of course, the vernacular school issue, you know, is is a, is a is a sensitive or even sacred issue to the Chinese community and others. And you know, I, I sat on quite a few education reform panels, etc. Eh? Uh, but you know, you have to balance that against unity, etc. So Singapore, for example, as you know, uh, Lee Kuan Yew's government uh, made it all into one stream, for example. Of course, there's issue of quality management, etc. So, so these are not easy issues, and certainly I'm not the guy to solve them. But I'm just highlighting that from an economic financial standpoint, we can't do uh, sustainable growth and development until and unless we solve this, lah. You know, the kind of structural things, right? The issue of corruption, the issue of you know governance, the issue of you know how political. Uh, power concentration and formation is happening, right? Uh, you know, 
can you or should you be able to jump parties for example i think you know people are upset uh, and and that that volatility actually is is very difficult as someone said that um, when the political mna market is more active than the corporate mna market then we are we're in trouble what you want is a very stable politics and then the trading and the corporate and the investment market is actually active lah then that's healthy right now is the other way around naturally the, the 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 investment side including the foreign investor you talk about is is uh, cautious i think that's understandable because you you're not clear where the where the policy and the and the political direction of the country is going right i think of course the those in in politics they they understand that but i think that needs to be solved and you would argue that even more basic is some of those issues actually those are foundational issues as far as i'm concerned so that needs reforming uh i think there is there is definitely a recognition uh just that you know what kind of platform etc i think you know and this is perhaps as good an opportunity as anything lah you know as we press the so called proverbial reset button right as we go ahead i think that's something we we need to bear in mind Yeah, um so much to unpack in what you just said, but I, I think the biggest elephant in the room is the political environment, Tanshi. Um I I don't know how to get you to I I guess to just give an honest candid viewpoint, but do you see So I, I always keep this in my in my in my room. You know what that is? That's the elephant in the room, lah. But never mind. <laughs> It is so true. Do you, do you see an any light at the end of the tunnel, Tanshi? Uh I mean, I I have my some views naturally. Like every Malaysian will have our views on the politics, but really not my place to talk too much about it because really not my field. But you know, but any solutioning you would expect, really you need to find a frequency. Uh, you know, if if you use the analogy of a of a conversation, you you must have a, a common language. Or in the case of technology, a common megahertz uh, to talk, lah, right? Uh, I think judging on what's happening on the hill, the Parliament Hill this week, susah, lah. You know, people are a lot of people talking, a lot of voices, but they're all over each other or shouting at each other. Then, then very difficult. So, so I think it has to start with, you know, figuring out how do we begin to have those conversations again and to agree to disagree even. And the uh, civility in t- in in terms of both, you know, how do you bring back civility into both politics and, if I may say, into civil society itself? Civil society is also is also noisy. Eh? I'm you know I'm in many groups like all of us are in 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 WhatsApp. Some you don't want to be in the group, so they put you in the group. Uh, then you just you know listen. And temperature is of course high. I think everyone's got to somehow cool down to find that frequency to talk properly. Uh, sorry lah, I I have to talk in abstraction because you know I don't think it's right or fair for me to talk the detail. Eh? I think that's of course known, and as I said, uh, Alhamdulillah lah. Thank God, I think so far, in spite of all the issues that we have, you know, again, I'm not being a an apologist or anything like that. But again, eh, this is in general, you see, we don't have a culture that is. It's still relatively okay, lah. I mean, you know, I mean, of course, there's a lot of people suffering this and that. You know, that, without doubt. I mean, how civil society has come forward to help to plug the gaps, etc. Right? You know, so this is happening. 
and that you know and between the races i think we we all quite united in that sense lah you know we 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 are all unhappy about the political uncertainty etc and the behavior of some of them but by and large i think you know the society is still coherent that is that is tolerance that is understanding by and large eh? by and large and and we abhor you know anti social behavior by by whatever lah by whoever right and i think that's something to build on chuang you know that that ni you look at some countries uh, that's not happening eh? of course that's why when when I can't remember was it Bloomberg who wrote about the failed state uh, I don't think it's a failed state lah, because failed state you cannot you cannot I mean by by many definitions right from Syria to let alone Yemen or even South Africa's writing come on jauh sekali kan but but we have to, we cannot be complacent obviously right we, we need to take so that's why in my mind any national recovery we need to think of three horizons lah. solve solve the virus right we need to do that fast in the next 18 12 to 18 months concurrently you know get the economic trajectory to 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 build back better so to speak but build back green build back fairer etc right and there when we talk about that a little bit just now right there's a few things there but at the same time you know a concurrent group needs to figure out You know how do we press the structural reset buttons? How do we even begin to do that? I think this is something as a society we have to we have to look at that. And I think many, you know, quite a few people you can see quite a lot of projects, eh? the Bangsa Malaysia project lah, the Better Malaysia project lah, and so on. I mean, there's quite a few. Uh, some will be top down, some will be bottom up. You know, vote 18 as far so it's good. All these are a kind of flowering of civil society. It's a little bit noisy, but that's natural. Noisy is okay lah, as long as it's reasonably orderly and people do it, you know, with good will, with good intent. Uh, then you know, inshallah, I think if we if we if we all individually, you know, uh, you know, resolve to do that properly, then I think we can get on the right stream lah. Put it that way. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Tanshi, thankfully, Malaysians uh, are at heart a peaceful society. And at working level, and definitely at ground level, we are very friendly. You know, we we know there's problems, but we are we are we're good with each other. Um, you know, all the things that you talk about from a structural perspective that have to be addressed, right? Taken in the context, because we don't live in a vacuum. There's other things going on. And in your slides to CIMB, you talked about you know at least six or seven global mega trends. Too many to get into today, but I I you know for example things like China. You know, and their preponderance in this part of the world, because obviously, you know, ASEAN is is very close to them, closer to them than, of course, closer to China than we are to America. So this tussle between America and China is happening in real time, right? There's also things like the climate, which is, you know, as you can see around the world, there's been so many flare-ups, uh, floods, you know, fires, droughts. It's it's getting clearer and clearer that there's something wrong with the environment. And then, of course, there's the geopolitics and the uncertainty of of um the client of of the unknown whether it's covid or the next virus you know let's just take china for example at tantri you know you you've been all over the world you've dealt with the chinese conglomerates you must have met senior chinese uh, government representatives in your time at kazana how should malaysians view china friend or foe yeah well well no no you you raise a very important topic i think in my Uh, speech to CIMB, which uh, I hope you can make available to to your listeners, like if they're interested, because 
uh, I mean in this interview format we we just you know chit chat that kind of thing right? but that one is a bit more structured so I highlighted about seven mega trends right? as I said too many to run through in detail but certainly geopolitics and geoeconomics of which the Sino-American uh, I was about to say relationship but it's more like contestation right is certainly one of them and indeed the whole uh, climate change environmental and uh, natural capital challenges is another one lah. okay so let, let's take both uh, or one one by one lah, rather uh, I think you're right Southeast Asia is uh, is definitely part of a theater within that contestation of the great powers lah. so we we are witnessing in our lifetime a return of that great powers as you know uh, I think it was a Greek uh, philosopher or whatever, uh, how do you pronounce it, Thulicides or something. <laughs> he basically says whenever, whenever you know, two superpowers cross in the history of mankind, i.e. one is on the decline and one is on the, on the up, that will result in a clash of some sort. Right? Uh, in the old days, war. Uh, today, it could be trade wars, it could be technology wars. Uh, or, or even finance wars, right? Because the finance wars is quite interesting. Lah. So dollar, just now we talk about dollar as reserve currency. There's some challenge from the cryptos, for example. Uh, of course, still small, interesting, but small. But then, you know, China comes out with their own cryptocurrency, right? Who knows? This could be a precursor to, to something happening there. Although they've been controlling yuan as an external currency for decades now. So Southeast Asia actually is a theater because if you think about it, uh, you know, the, the two hosts in that contestation, uh, their respective markets, <coughs> they, they build up walls to each other, right? Europe, I think, was, was kind of trying to play both sides and, and naturally so because they need, they need the capital, they need the energy, uh, the likes of Italy and of course they got BRI and stuff like that. But increasingly... Uh, they are moving towards towards their their old NATO partners lah, right? Increasingly, so Southeast Asia actually. So therefore, we should be you know clever to try to be neutral. We were neutral. We we put neutrality at the heart of. In fact, it's a foundational value or principle of ASEAN, right? As you know, uh, there's that 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 uh, <laughs> memorable acronym ZOPFAN. Zone of peace, freedom, and neutrality. I think that's what a bit of a mouthful, but that became a principle uh, to ASEAN, which itself came out of part of the thinking around the non-aligned movement that Sukarno did, and uh, I think it was 1955 in Bandung, if I'm not mistaken. So, so one is: can we be neutral at a time of great power rivalry? Yeah? Uh, the answer is maybe. That's why I've been advocating. Uh, a metaphor of um, as you know when F elephants fight you be careful don't get trampled lah. but in, in our folktale uh, legacy of this part of the world not just Malaysia but certainly also Indonesia <coughs> you know the animal sang kancil right so kancil the mouse deer is a clever animal that is small but is clever nimble that when when the big uh, you know the big uh, elephants or crocodiles or the tigers all fight that you are able to maneuver that you win actually so you don't get involved in their fight so so that's that's the the, the overall metaphor so a kind of kanchil nomics is something we need to think of what does that mean so for example you know we, we should treat both china and america 
as a friend if we can. There will be some instances like whether it's South China Sea or whether a particular American president comes in and tries to do a very one-sided trade agreement, for example, you know, which uh, in my view, the TPP, the problem with the TPP, in my view, uh, now I can say lah, I'm outside Kadana now, was that uh, it was too one-sided. It wasn't about free trade. You know, I said, yeah, we were all for free trade, but it must be fair trade as well. Uh, it was actually perhaps targeted at certain countries in the region, but we, we were collateral damage, right? In the end, the American people rejected that deal too. It, ironically, because it was too one-sided, probably in favor not of Americans, but certain American corporations, you know, people were losing jobs, etc. right? So both uh, Trump for sure, but Hillary Clinton was also eventually had to back down. Uh, it was during the Obama time. But anyway, so, so, so in the case of China, for example, if some of the BRI deals were too one-sided, for example, ECRL is good. I think the, the Dr. Mahathir's government went back and pushed back and renegotiated. Not, not many countries were willing to do that, eh? from, from Sri Lanka to Pakistan to other places. I think it's good. And frankly, for my Chinese friends, they should know that if they do one-sided deals, eventually this thing will come back to bite them. It's not, it's not going to do them any good, whether in Southeast Asia or in Africa or anywhere. But I think we are primed, actually, and so is Indonesia, so is Thailand, uh, to capture the consequence of this great power rivalry, actually. I think this is certainly should be part of our uh, rebuilding program. Eh? Uh, of course, we may have a dilemma, then what happens if, uh, if South China Sea, there are skirmishes, or they, you know, people come into our waters, etc. This is about national sovereignty, etc. Right? We have to defend that. I think... That part is somehow the balance that we, we need to find. Like, and that's where diplomacy and uh, you know, clear thinking, clear preparedness, etc., which I think, I think we can achieve that. And, and we've done that before, right? So during the Cold War kind of rivalry, right? So, so the so-called domino theory, lah. I don't know whether you remember Chong, because people were fearing if Vietnam falls and then what happens to the rest of Southeast Asia. And actually there was a communist insurgency in our... Uh, that's one of the challenges that we overcame in the 64 years, right? But we found a way. And, and again, this starts with actually some form of national solidarity. Like if you're not strong domestically, then yeah, you, could, you, you cannot play this. To, be, to play the, the, the so-called good kanchil nomics, you must be strong kanchil in the first place, like put it that way. So yeah, you know, hope that makes some sense. No, it does. Um, so obviously I can't help but consider what it takes to... To, to coalesce all those different ideas into a peaceable one which works for the country. Um, do we need an administration and leaders who are more democratic in nature? Um, do we need leadership and administration which is more dictatorial in nature? For example, Kuan Yew of, of Singapore might have done a good job of con controlling both power um, divides. Uh, maybe Tun Mahathir as well would have done a, a good job. But we don't have those leaders in, in this country anymore, not, not at least uh, visibly. Um, in, in your opinion, what kind of administration do we need um, to, to, to traverse these two giants that are fighting in our backyard, firstly? And, and secondly, um, um, how much pain must we go through before we get to that point? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, the the you know, people who, who are experts and, you know, they commented on these matters about leadership, political leadership, political systems. Again, I, I'm just uh, putting a caveat, not 
not my field per se. However, of course, you know, I I I look from a economic and financial lens. That I think quite clearly that the uh, there's a commentary saying that at times of great uncertainty and volatility around the world, which is happening in finance, in climate, in society, right, inequality, etc., right, technology actually increases that that kind of a uh, amplitude and volatility. People look for certain strength and, and certainty, and therefore people seem to be voting strong men, lah, mostly men, right. <laughs> From you know, uh, you know, Modi in India or Erdogan in Turkey. Before that, we had Donald Trump in in the White House, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Duterte in uh, Philippines, or indeed President Xi in uh, in China. Uh, interestingly, they are all men, right? And yet, when you do surveys of who are successful heads of state or or people that we kind of admire, who inspire us, they're mostly ladies, eh? <laughs> from New Zealand, who's amazing. Of course, people can say small country, but you just look at Germany. I'm a, I'm an admirer of Angela Merkel, what she has done. You know, she's she's amazing, and uh, you know, very principled. Uh, you know, effective. This one, no no nonsense, right? Very humble. Uh, I think she's a clergyman, uh, clergyman's daughter, uh, This one, uh, and so on, right? So so I think leadership, whether you know more autocratic more concentrated power or less i'm not convinced by by that argument to have that right number one because uh, you know in fact as as a famous uh, chinese leader said it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white as long as it catches the rat right so i think the only ism we should be following is actually pragmatism lah of course pragmatism means you solve the problem but based on Certain, you know, uh, values and principles, lah. You know, uh, you know, it, it must be fair, etc. So, on balance, I would say, obviously, we 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 should move away. And in any case, the times doesn't allow it anymore. I think you you have to open up. Even Singapore is opening up. I think they've been successful at what they do, but I think they understand that you have to open up, whether it's social media or younger generation, or indeed, is the right thing to do. But. There must be checks and balance in the system. So I would say a blended, you know, system that that you you have both you know order, uh, but yet <clears throat> you have room, freedom of thought that people can do things and freedom, and and freedoms lah, but not unfettered freedoms lah. You know, I'm you know we we need certain order. So so I think we have a tradition of achieving that balance, you know, between uh, a more centralized need as well as a more Freer and distributed, but within our own cultural norms and so on and so forth, So I think, yeah. But but as I said, that is in the realm of not the short or medium term restructuring, lah. I think we we need to figure out this on our journey. I think by the time we get to be, I don't know, seventy five years old as a country or something like that, so ten, eleven year horizon, is maybe you know this is that generation, lah. That that um, you know those who are in their thirties, forties. Uh, perhaps 50s I think it's, it's it, I think of course the older I, I, I just turned 60 lah, so I'm probably in the in that slightly older generation I think you know we, we should share whatever experience that is hopefully useful but that generation now coming through I think we'll need to build that and not just us I think all over the world people are trying to find that, that balance 
And I would just make one other point, which is the countries that can get those configurations together, if you can get your act together, the rewards in the global system now is disproportionately higher. So for example, there's a lot of capital out there. There's a lot of liquidity. So they're all trying to find. So if country A does, it doesn't actually have to do an absolutely perfect job. If it does a relatively good job relative to the next guy, the money will come. Eh? We, we, we understand that, right? So, so you know, so, so this is actually the price. And 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 while we're doing it, the contestation of the superpowers or even ideological systems, we should, in my view, be wary and cover our own mola. We, 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 you know, we, we have to engage naturally, but you know, statesmanship or 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 uh, what they call it, statecraft, if you can, can call it that, is the ability to how to harness all these things and create your own mold, maintain some kind of, you know, your own sovereignty, but yet, you know, be engaged with the world. Uh, and, and do that ultimately, actually, what, what is the right thing to do? As I said just now, just like finance, uh, finance is supposed to serve the real economy, serve society. Uh, so is politics, actually. You should be serving... <laughs> serving the ultimately society la, and the people and, and you know if we can do that then you know great future ahead I know there's a lot there's a lot but you know when you have a big problem you break it up into smaller problems la, and then and then try to solve them yeah so even while this all this financialization is going on uh, the, the markets don't sleep they, they're, they're trading 24-7 on this on the cycle and as we speak I mean this is your realm of expertise here Tantri um, I, I just want to get your view on the next say 10 years in financial markets because obviously as you say ASEAN and Malaysia are in the doldrums because of, of our own respective problems and China has got its clamp down from a regulatory perspective on its technology companies and America is at an all time high continues to chart new record highs a lot of this is due to the surplus capital as you were saying in the, in the system Tanjui how do you see markets in the next 10 years do you see a transition to cryptocurrencies do you see um, a, a fleeing of capital from, from traditional markets like fixed income and, and equities into the new currencies into the new crypto markets um, how should investors position their portfolios in the next 10 years? Um, you know, these big macro issues, which I think a lot of people are grappling with, not just at an individual level, but also at institutional level. I see more and more money being put into Ethereum and Bitcoin and, and what have you, into these new things like and, um, non-fungible tokens. And um, I just want to get your point of view. What, how do you see the things, markets unfolding in the next 10 years? Yeah, well, I don't know. 10 years is quite a long time, um, Chong, because... As you know, markets these days, the focus on short-termism is even more day trading, etc. Yeah, first of all, you 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 talk a lot just now about cryptos. So cryptos is interesting because you know at first we get enamored by the underlying technology, right? Blockchain. Of course, blockchain is just the enabling technology, interesting one at that, powerful. Uh, but then you get excited by the fact that uh, in theory, cryptos with a finite amount. Uh, you know, Bitcoin being the first and then later many came, uh, actually, in theory, imposes certain discipline on how much supply of that particular uh, asset class comes into the market, right? In theory, right? Unlike, you know, we were all worried around this time around the kind of fiat money, money printing being done by central banks. Uh, the problem with that is the price then is not anchored on anything solid. So it's still open to lots of speculation by real money coming out from the printing presses of central banks around the world. 
So as a result, you you have an instrument that that is interesting with very interesting enabling technology. In theory, a finite supply, but infinite amount of speculators, and therefore there's no there's no price stability, right? Or it's not anchored anything. That that is a problem. Uh, I know some people. Uh, you know, one one of the roles I'm I'm on now is I'm on the board of INSEAF, which is under Bank Negara, uh, which is the Islamic Finance University, right? So, so if you look back into monetary history, in fact, uh, this year, 2021 is the 50th anniversary. In 1971, Richard Nixon took the US dollar off the gold standard, right? So it's, it's the 50th anniversary of the of the US free floating their currency, which did a few things. Uh, one of it is that you know you can print money lah because you're no longer anchored to to dollars. So at one time the French were asking where's my gold. The gold was in Fort Knox, and you know not sure where where the, <laughs> the gold whether got enough gold or not because the US was you know being drained by by the 70s you know loss of productivity, but also uh, Vietnam War lah. This was draining their coffers, right? So, so, uh, so, so, some people are looking at anchoring, uh, let's say, a, 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 a currency, a cryptocurrency based on something. For example, the price of gold, right? Uh, then, of course, no excitement, lah, you know, because then you might as well go and buy gold through. Uh, on the other hand, gold has certain disadvantages, dif- difficult to, to divide, to carry, you know, as a store of value, as a means of transaction and exchange. So, so to my mind, uh, in its current form, you know, I, I, I have not put my own money into cryptos. Maybe I should have, but on the other hand, you know, as I say, interesting, but, but it's not uh, something I'm comfortable with. I think it's too open speculation. Uh, I think the, um, you know, between various asset classes, equity, in, you, you would think will continue to do well, you know, if you believe that the low interest rate environment we, we, we discussed earlier is very difficult to get out of, you know there's something not right. On the other hand, what the hell do you do? The proverbial genie is already out of the bottle, right? All that liquidity. How do you put that back in? Uh, in my, you know, two, three years away, I've been in my sabbatical, I've been reading a bit. So in history, actually, uh, a lot of that liquidity is in the form of debt, Right? So, so the debt industry creates, you know, debt and then debt on top of debt, etc. Historically, what is done is actually what is called a debt jubilee. Eh? So the king wakes up one day and decides on his birthday, whatever, to to free all the debt slaves. And it's called a debt jubilee lah, because debt basically resets society up to a point and, and creates a certain period of calm until debt builds up again. Eh? So, so I don't think that's going to happen. They tried to do this in some African countries, for example, the the highly indebted countries, you know, the kind of uh, debt uh, forgiveness programs, right? So, so if you believe that, that those kind of monetary conditions are not going to change for a while, it will take a while. In fact, it's probably going to be harder than even the very difficult carbon uh, to net zero transition is difficult to begin with. Eh? You know, to, to reverse this kind of uh, monetary policy is in some ways more difficult, uh, you know, because nature has a self-healing kind of a process eh, if you think about it but but not necessarily in the financial world therefore uh, you know interest rates should be low of course on and off we fear about inflation a bit but because underlying economy is still not great those those inflationary pressure won't, won't be quite there 
Therefore, asset prices and equity in particular, you would have thought would continue to to be higher than usual, right? So if there's no liquidity, then you know this kind of valuation multiples will not be there, right? So you would you would think that it would still need. So I would say as an asset class, therefore, you know, uh, certainly uh, equities should continue to to thrive in that sense. Of course. Then within equities, they, they call it what the K recovery, right? There's a big divergence between certain type of stocks, technology, for example. Uh, but big tech, as it grows, as you can see, there's a pushback from regulations, uh, etc. And that's quite natural, you know, in the past, whether, I don't know, Standard Oil, Rockefeller, more than 100 years ago, or AT&T, etc., or Microsoft, when they grow too big, naturally there'll be some pushback or indeed now uh, big pharma is of course raking it in with with uh, with the with the vaccination and so on and so forth right so so there will be some natural uh, checks and balance coming into the system uh, i think you know the split between developed and emerging markets uh, that was my view lah. i think there will be some winners among emerging markets those who can get their act together so for example the last few years uh, someone like Vietnam, for example, right? We can see a clear breakthrough coming through, right? But to get to where they were for that for that relative lift off the last two three years, <coughs> uh, you know, it needed decades of preparation, etc. Or even a Bangladesh, for example, you know, people always have images of like life aid, you know, drought and and flooding and stuff like that, which they still have. But you know, the last few years they they've they've become, you know, manufacturing sector, not just textiles, but, but pharmaceuticals, for example, you know, they, 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 they began to to do something. Lah. So, so it is possible to reverse these things. Lah. So Malaysia, we had we have that in our muscle memory, actually. It's there somewhere. I think we, we need to sort it out. There's a lot of, you know, I, I mean, our demographics is still favorable, eh? right? So of course, there's, there's issues around education, macam -macam lah, a lot of things. So I don't know whether I answered your your ten year portfolio plan, <laughs> but that's then of course you know thematically within that things like green ESG, you know you have to be careful of greenwashing and stuff like that. But you know, but clearly there are a lot of themes and sub themes within that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So this one takeaway from your message is that ten years out is still going to be the traditional um, equities, um, you know, theme, and of course, uh, technology and ESG. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. One thing to note, Chong, is that you know, equities can mean public equities, which is of course what we normally mean by equities, uh, but it could also mean private equity, not necessarily the very large you know, masters of universe kind of PE firms, your KKRs and TPGs of the world. But I think, you know, there's a flowering of regional PE firms, uh, which I think are interesting. I think there's probably going to be a lot of interesting companies in the in the private equity space. And then venture, venture is another form of equity. Uh, let alone you combine that with the, with the power of uh, technology, right? You know, so... So I think all, all that will be quite interesting. And then, you know, then the potential for partnerships, regional partnerships, right? So I think we, we were already doing some of this when I was at Kazana. And indeed, you know, you talk about Chinese companies because they have to come back home or closer to home uh, already happening, right? So Ali came here, Tencent is already here, etc., etc. You know, so, so, so I think there will be many, many possibilities. Just that, you know, as I said, I think... You know, good smart equity will be one way. Like I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of um, 
of you know, certain instruments like crypto, which is which is open to too much volatility and speculation, lah, right? Uh, unless they can tweak that, as I said, if if it's anchored on something more solid than you know, like gold, for example, that could be interesting. A kind of crypto dinner, if you like, you know, something like that. That could be interesting. That could be one interesting development. Um, you know, earlier you talked about how you break up small, uh, big, big problems into small chunks, and then you—that's how you can um, solve them along the way. Um, I like the fact that in in your slides, and we're obviously moving to a more personal element now. You have um, you have segregated life into into seven year cycles, right? So I see, and you've got a very you've got very nice handwriting, country. So so you know, obviously. Um, you're you're now in in the in the ninth um, well section of the seven year cycles where um, you put it to forty fifty six to sixty three years old, still very productive but transitioning to a stewardship um, uh, role. Uh, I know in the last three years you've travelled around the world, you've built your own websites, you've uh, you know you've taken uh, you've gone around the world seventy seven in seventy seven days on on seventy seven trains train rides. Um, you had a lot of time to to reflect on your journey in life. Um, maybe you can tell me about this uh, these seven year cycles. I mean, w- what advice can you give to people in terms of making sure that each seven year cycle is a very productive and successful one? Right. Uh, I mean, the the it's in first it, this reference what Chuang reference to the so called seven year cycle theory of uh, life's journey. Uh, is something I kind of picked up, but also I kind of, I suppose, extrapolated it. And I've used that as a framework in all my years of um, supervising people. I was, you know, head of Kazana and and therefore, you know, I would have, uh, you know, all your usual, not just performance evaluation, but it was really trying to figure out and help, uh, you know, those who report to you, how they can be the best they can be, put it that way. So I've used this so-called seven-year cycles. Yeah, truly a life well lived, lah. And the story still it goes on with with you, because you know you you've got a long more to go. Hopefully, one day you'll make your website um, available to everybody. <clears throat> but I, I guess when when people go traveling, and they are a little bit further away from the you know the minutia of Malaysia and all our little you know occurrences and and issues that we've got to deal with. You know, we've got time to reflect and we've got time to look back on our country and our people and, and to get, you know, to get a bit, um, to ruminate on our issues, right? I'm sure that when you're away for over two months, you would have been able to look at Malaysia from a distance. And I guess it's a parting shot. Um, you know, you would have felt all kinds of emotions and, and reached certain conclusions about our country and our future and our place in the world. What are some of the conclusions that you reached, Antri? And... Um, you know, obviously, as you say, Malaysia's only been around 64 years um, as an independent country. We are but mere saplings in, in the larger scheme of things when you compare to the UK and so on. You know, what, what kind of conclusions did you reach about Malaysia, you know, as a little parting shot to, to people who are, you know, consuming this podcast? No, honestly, my, my you know, of course, a bit of a cliche. I think, you know, like a lot of people, I'm naturally an optimist. Or certainly not a pessimist, but maybe a better way to put it is, you know, I think we all should be optimists, but also realists. In other words, we we cannot be just simply optimists without looking at reality, right? So there are obviously some major 
challenges and we spoke about them already, you know, structural, etc. But let's not forget, is the glass half full or half empty or indeed, I would I would submit maybe not three quarters. Lah. We were once three quarters full. Currently, maybe we are two thirds full. But I don't think we're even, you know, half full in that sense, of course. Uh, so, so that's my first point, lah, if I may. I think we, we, we need to get our act together, no doubt. And and those to those who've been given power and position and authority and given more in whatever various levels, yeah, everybody's got to got to do their part, right? To to those who are given more, of course, more and more is expected of you. Uh, so for me, you know, I will continue to try and contribute wherever I can. As I said, I'm I'm doing stuff at universities. I'm on several national council, although not not uh, full time, right? It's non executive. I'm doing some of my work internationally you know affiliations etc i'm you know uh i'm also i forgot to mention i'm i'm i've i've taken up the invitation from tansri kosukun and tansri and rusheng i'm on the wawasan uh, education foundation eh, which which owns the wawasan open university in penang etc you know a, a place i you know i've always had a good a good uh, feeling with on for so all these things, we, we all need to contribute wherever we can. If you think about it, if you think about the the challenges we kind of highlighted just now, right? We need to overcome. What, what are the among the positives I think we have? Uh, let's take uh, history for a start. As I said, even in that short 64 years, you can make a case that we've been able to overcome. Eh? Uh, you know, uh, as I said, you know, independence, the challenge of that, post-colonial, 69, the challenge of that, right? And then the 86 crisis, in, the, in between you had the whole communist insurgency, right? You can't have that kind of thing now. With CNN, people will know like, nowadays. At that time, you actually had a war in our jungles, right? In Sabah, in Sarawak, and in Peninsula, right? So we overcame that. Uh, we overcame, you know, 85, the Plaza Accord, you know, suddenly our loans, yen loans went like crazy. We overcame all that. 98, Big crisis, right? Uh, you know, part of my journey at Kazana, okay, we did what we did. You know, thank God, you know, uh, again, uh, all that is recorded. Didn't really talk too much about it today. I think we delivered uh, financial, strategic, whatever societal contribution. We did all that. We traveled the portfolio, etc. So I think we have some history of overcoming adversity uh, as a country. Of course, there are some preconditions you need to do that. Uh, but, but, but take take heart and take pride in that I think it's important history number two geography we are in the right location you know you couldn't you you, you know of course we talk about the great power rivalry etc but you know our proximity to all this region third is if we can harness that well Chuang that diversity is obviously a strength for us right uh, I think Malaysians I believe are in great demand all over the world Malaysian talent partly because I think we are we are like almost second nature, right? We we think in multi dimensions because we come from a multicultural background and all that, lah. Sure, there's unfortunately silos in our society, etc. I tried whatever within my powers, you know, whether how we structure Kazana or the companies that I led, Axiata, etc. I was chairman, you know. We, we tried to 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 make those changes as best as we can, and we continue. But certainly that diversity and that geography, I think, is is another factor. We have a lot of natural resources. We have to manage it well. There is pressure from ESG standpoint on sectors like plantations, on sectors like you know uh, utilities, oil and gas, 
or indeed the manufacturing sector we need to clean up and green uh, our whole thing but that can be another engine of growth right uh, yes we need to sort out education etc but you know there is still a lot of talent uh, a lot of enterprising people I think the the rather uncertain environment to me you can take it negatively or you can take it as okay in a lot of this uncertainty actually there is room to shape things yourself actually and I, I saw that in the certainly 98 those who came out in 98 and those who came out from 86 so so I think uh, so I, I've highlighted how I see the next 10 years into those three horizons but at the end of the day I think that maybe a good place to end is uh, there is personal agency as they call it it's really up to us up to me up to each one of us you know to find that and then secondly there is collective agency lah. collective agency means the power of collectivism lah, whether through civil society or whether through institutions right so I was both uh, you know it was both a, an honor but also a, a, a big amana a big responsibility to run a major institution lah, which was Kazana right so for 14 years and I'm grateful for that but that but I think you you must treat that as a um, as a kind of platform uh, where it's basically an institution uh, which is what I want to end on that the power of the individual uh, to take charge of your journey uh, in order to be the best you can be right in the right way do the right things in the right way but then to translate that into the power of institutions and collectivism uh, coming together so I think that's one way uh, as per your podcast uh, Chuang, to do more yeah, Hopefully. well, thank you, Tantri. I mean, the the story doesn't end because you've got so many more years of contribution to the country, and I think the powers that be recognize you for who you are. And um, I, I'm so chuffed that they have acknowledged that, and I think that your thoughts, your insights, your experience can really help pull us this country out of the situation. As you say, um, it is never, you know, it is always a glass half full. So, I mean, thank you for your time. It was a huge honor, huge privilege. Um, no, no, my, 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 my privilege. Thank you. So, no, no one has come bigger than you, uh, Tansri. So, you, you contribution no, 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 is, is immense. Um, good luck. Good luck with the, with, the, you know, with the journey ahead for all the decades to come. And um, thank you once again for, for the time you spent with me. Thanks. Thanks, John. Keep up the great work. <laughs>